Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to Heritage. Pleased everybody could float in today as opposed to the normal drive. Good morning and welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. Uh, for our in-house guests, we would ask that last courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. For those watching online, of course, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time, simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. And we will, of course, post today's program on our homepage for your future reference. Leading today's discussion and welcoming our special guest is Tori Whiting. Tori serves us as the J. Van Andel Trade Economist in our Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. She earned a bachelor's degree in international relations from James Madison Residential College at Michigan State University. And before joining us here at Heritage in 2015, she served as an intern in the Michigan House of Representatives and then as a legislative aide there. Please join me in welcoming Tori Whiting. Tori? John, thank you so much for your kind introduction, and uh, thank you, of course, as always, to the Heritage Foundation for um, being able to help us put on this, uh, this great event. Um, I'm very pleased to be able to welcome um, an esteemed guest to the Heritage Foundation today. Um, it's been wonderful watching um, his work on, on free trade and on um, promoting the benefits of trade, not only for the country, but for the state of Wisconsin. Um, so I'll just take a moment here to introduce uh, Senator Ron Johnson. Um, Ron Johnson was elected to the U.S. Senate in 2010 and assumed office in 2011. He is chairman of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee and also serves on the committees on budget, commerce, science and transportation, and foreign relations. Previously, Senator Johnson worked for 31 years at Packure LLC, a polyester and plastics manufacturing business, which he co-founded in 1979. Johnson received a BSB accounting degree from the University of Minnesota. He is the father of three and resides in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, with his wife, Jane. So please um, join me in welcoming Senator Ron Johnson. Well, thank you, Tori, and thank you, John, and thank all of you for coming here and braving the, uh, the elements. Um, it's always a little intimidating come, coming to a place like uh, the Heritage Foundation where you know, this is the think tank. These are the folks that educate me. They give me the, the information I need. Quite honestly, they give Congress and the administration the information it needs to, to try and govern this, uh, this nation. Uh, so, again, it's a little intimidating uh, to be talking on the subject like this. So what I'd 
prefer doing is rather than talking as, as an expert on trade with all the facts and figures, but let me just give you my perspective as somebody coming from the private sector. You know, in manufacturing for 30-some years, very specialty product that we exported to about 20, 25 different countries around the world. So I actually understand global supply chains. I understand you know, the, the, the difficult nature, for example, of getting a customer, uh, finally getting one you know, on the line and, and reeling them in and you know, going through a, a supplier approval process, which can sometimes take years, but then also how very difficult, it, or how very easy it can be to lose a customer. So again, I, I bring that private sector uh, perspective here. I want to start out with uh, just kind of a basic question, because I'm not quite sure at what point in time in our nation's history that business began being viewed as evil, where we, where we where we really wasn't what's good for GM is good for America. You know, I'm, I'm not quite sure when that happened. I'm also not quite sure at what point in time trade became, became a bad thing. So to me, it's just obvious that the trade works. One of the examples I use, just a very simplified example, is let's say you have 10 farmers and you have 10 crops. Are you better off having each farmer try and produce 10 crops inefficiently? Or are you better off having each farmer specialize and then have them trade? I think the answer is quite obvious. And I also think that that answer scales up beautifully even with nation states. Uh, you know, we, we are basically at full employment. And when I went through college and took Econ 101, I, you know, I always heard of the full employment uh, level of unemployment was somewhere around 4 and 5 percent. Well, we're under that. In the state of Wisconsin, we're at 2.9 percent now. For all of my career here as a senator, as I've traveled around the state of Wisconsin, there's not one manufacturer that can hire enough people. That's also true of every dairy farm. They don't have enough people to milk the cows to produce the products that, that we all enjoy. So, I mean, to me, that is the, the primary problem right now. So with that in mind, why in the world would we not want to take advantage of imports produced, you know, high, high labor content imports that can be produced far more efficiently and cost American consumers far less and have our limited number of workers concentrate on producing high value added products? That's what happens. Listen, you know, South Carolina, for example, big textile state. You know, textiles went over to, you know, low wage. Again, as a high labor content product, went over to low wage countries. So now I can buy a shirt for 10 bucks. I kind of like being able to buy a shirt for 10 bucks. And those South Carolina workers, now there's some displacement, no doubt about it. It's one of the reasons we, we offer uh, government support to help those people through that transition. But now they're building Boeing planes. It, it, does, it does work out if you let the marketplace uh, take care of it. Um, Another concept I always throw out there too is so many, it's all about manufacturing jobs. Okay, manufacturing jobs good, other jobs apparently not so good. Now, there are some great jobs in, in the service industry and the question I would pose, would we, who, who would want to go back to the same type of labor profile we had 100 years ago when a large percentage of Americans were involved in producing food? But today, less than 10%, it's single digit number of Americans are involved in agriculture, and we feed the world. Isn't that a better situation? And of course, we did that by combining labor with capital and human innovation. And we produce these e enormous productivity gains. That, that's what America's economy should, should really focus on. Now, I, I gave a speech to a bunch of congressional interns just a couple weeks ago. 
and I asked the audience, how, how many consider yourself a little pro progressive? How many consider yourself conservative? It was about a half and half audience. One of the liberal progressive uh, interns stood up and kind of asked me a question, like, you know, Senator Johnson, how, how can you possibly, how can you possibly support individual businesses that are, you have all this power over us? You know, wh why don't you understand that you need government to rein them in so, that, so they don't harm us poor consumers? And, you know, my simple answer was, you know, government can impose the death penalty on you. I'm more concerned about a centralized authority that has that much power over lives versus thousands, tens of thousands of individual businesses that you've got complete power over, right? If, if, if you don't like their product, if you don't like their price, stop buying it. Consumers have complete control in so many cases. Now, you know, there's exception for monopolies, and that's where government needs to step in. But again, that, I, I don't understand that mindset where people are just looking at government to control everything, which allows me to transition to what's happening right now in terms of trade and what I can only term as the commissars now in the Commerce Department. You know, the Senate Finance Committee, there were about 22,000 waivers uh, requested. I was talking to some of the administration, I think it's up to 30,000. Uh, back then, that Finance Committee hearing, less than 100 of those 22,000 waivers on the tariffs had been adjudicated. Half of them were denied. So this just seems antithetical to what America's free market system is all about, where we now have people in government making the decision which businesses are going to survive and which ones are going to fail because of taxes. Now, again, let's, let's call tariffs what they really are. They are taxes on American consumers. Again, what, at what point in time did we judge publicly that exports were good, and imports were bad. I, I, I literally do not get that equation. I, I, I think I do, certainly in my own experience, when was Ross Pro was running, and he talked about the giant sucking sound that we were going to hear when NAFTA was finally signed a, a year or two later. You know, the, the only sucking sound I'm hearing is exports from America going into Canada and Mexico. Just a couple of little facts. I mean, you kind of hope that facts somewhat Take, take hold in this debate. When we first started talking about a, a unified North American market, that was under Ronald Reagan in, in the mid-80s. Since that point in time, this is in today's dollars, dollars, exports from America to Mexico and Canada have increased by $321 billion per year. And the trade deficit, again, in today's dollars, only increased $7 billion. That's from the mid-80s. That's a 45 to 1 ratio. Now, if you fast forward to 1993 when the deal was actually signed, exports have grown by $221 billion, and the trade deficit's grown about $50 billion, again, just different time frame, but that's still a four-to-one ratio. I'll, I'll take that deal anytime, anytime. We had a roundtable in Milwaukee. I hosted it uh, because we had heard literally from hundreds of different companies from around the nation, but obviously central, centered coming out of Wisconsin. And I want to just sit down and talk to these, these businesses who are calling up with grave concerns about what's happening in terms of the tariffs and how it's going to affect their businesses. So we had farmers, we had food processors, we had manufacturers, small, medium, and large. Well, let me just give you the quick takeaways. And by the way, I, I bundled up their one-page synopsis. That's what I asked them to provide prior to the roundtable, just a one-page synopsis about, about their concerns or, or their experience under the, the beginning trade war here. 
And we packaged up those uh, 15 synopsises with a letter to the president and Senate to all the trade representatives, and, and hopefully these examples will have some impact on this debate. But in terms of the manufacturers, what they've basically experienced, this is just a, a general, generalized summary, somewhere between a 30 and 40% price increase on the steel they use. Now remember, tariffs went up, I mean, the, the tariff is 25%, and yet they're paying from their domestic suppliers 30 to 40% higher prices. Go figure. Uh, they are losing, currently, they are losing both customers overseas, so export orders, as well as domestic orders, because their competitors aren't paying the higher price. And, you know, thank God, we haven't imposed tariffs on everything coming to this country, so their competitors are able to ship their product without, at lower cost into America as well. So their basic takeaway is that the only businesses that are benefiting from this trade war and from these tariffs are their overseas competitors. They're able to increase their prices to come in just under American manufacturers. They still get the orders. Their profits have expanded with, more, with expanded profits. Just run this out long term. They're going to have more money to invest in capital. Remember, our, our, our domestic businesses in Wisconsin, they're saying they're putting on hold or they're canceling their capital expenditures. It's just far too uncertain an environment. And that's what's so unfortunate about this. I think what President Trump, this administration has done a fabulous job of, is they've re, they had returned certainty and optimism to the American economy. They, they, they stopped adding to the regulatory burden, which, by the way, number of studies shows about $2 trillion per year, $15,000 per household. Now, nobody writes a check, you know, my share of the federal uh, regulation burden. It's a silent killer of economic activity. This president recognized it, and he stopped adding to it. We've actually reduced it a little bit. That's brought certainty and optimism to the, to the business world, as well as we finally made America's business taxation system competitive with, with the globally, global competitors. So, so bottom line, prior to the trade war, this administration brought a great deal of certainty and optimism, which is why the economy's taken off and why unemployment rates are so incredibly low. The trade war, the tariffs, that's like throwing a, a hand grenade of uncertainty into all the good. And it's just so incredibly counterproductive. So, you know, I am I'm begging this administration to use the leverage, conclude the trade deals, and let's move on. Let's, let's return certainty and stability. Now, from a standpoint of farmers and food processors, they really are experiencing a double whammy. You know, not only are they losing access to markets that has taken them decades to develop, you know, where we went from just feeding America to feeding the world. These markets have taken decades to develop, so they're losing access to that. They're, they're being replaced right now. And those, those orders, these are long-term contracts. They're, this, is, this can be permanent damage. Now, in addition to that, when you lose access to those, those markets, what's going to happen to all the supply? It's not like you just turn off a machinery. It's, you, you, the crops are in the field. We're going to have a massive oversupply domestically versus the demand we have, and so price is going to plummet. So we had a dairy farmer, 200 cows. His, his damages are already totaling in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. A little dairy farm like that can't sustain hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of loss because of reduced, reduced margins and, and loss of markets. Um, let me just give you a quote from one of the food processors. This is Cindy Brown. She runs a seven-generation family-owned canning business, where they can beans. 
She said, in that 160 years, there has been no government action that has left us in such terrible shape as what this has. That is a really sad reality. That is hopefully a comment that President Trump and Wilbur Ross and Peter Navarro and, and uh, Bob Lighthizer actually take a look at and put into their thought process as they move forward with uh, increasing tariffs, more threats, and an ever-expanding trade war that, you know, again, my concern can just totally run out of control. You know, to, to wrap up, uh, you know, President Bush tried this in 2002. From March 5th, 2002 till December 4th, 2003, one study was, was conducted by an organization called SciTac. Uh, they estimated, and of course, these are estimates, these are projections, about 200,000 jobs lost in non-steel producing businesses. In other words, the steel using businesses. So, you know, we, we don't have to theorize what the damage is going to be. We already have the history, and I've seen estimates under the current round, under this tariff, that we could, again, be looking at probably hundreds of thousands of jobs lost to save, what, a few, a few thousand in the steel industry. Just, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So with that, you know, hopefully that gets you thinking a little bit, and I guess call Tori up here, and she can ask a couple questions. Thank you so much, Senator. I appreciate your great comments. Oh, thank you. Um, where I should sit. Um, so we're going to take a few minutes. Just um, I'm going to ask a few questions of the senator, um, and we'll have a little back and forth, and then we'll take a couple of questions from the audience. So thank you so much for your comments. Um, I think that you really just hit the nail on the head with your discussion. Um, and I want to I want to start off by hitting on what you touched on very briefly about talking about the roundtable you had in Wisconsin last last week, a week and a half right. ago or so. So it's really fresh on the mind. Um, and you told the story of um, of a, a canning um, facility. Um, can you tell us any other just kind of interesting stories? Or anecdotes that you learned while you were hearing from those businesses in your home state about, um, you know, what they're feeling and what the reality is. Well, it, it was interesting. Now, we didn't have any steel. We didn't have like Nucor. We didn't have any steel producing businesses. So, you know, I just asked. It was 15 again, pretty representative businesses. Uh, anybody thinking this is a good idea? And you know, they just had a very sad laugh. Was was their response? So, no, I, I think the my comments in terms of the generalized harm being done now. And what really hit home is the way they were talking about their overseas competitors with big grins on their faces, that they are the ones that are really benefiting from this trade war uh, and putting them at a disadvantage. So I mean, these, these are, again, put yourself in, in a position of a business, I've been there, where you're competing against companies for decades. And by the way, the business world is tough. You know, business is not easy. Uh, competition, I mean, it's, the free market system is a brutal evaluator. And so you've been competing against these businesses for decades, and now all of a sudden you have an action by the U.S. government that's just making it easy for your global competitors to eat your lunch. I mean, think about that. You, you know, U.S. manufacturers' prices are increasing. They've got to increase their prices. They're losing that business, and their competitors get to raise their price don't have an increased cost, their profits increase, and now they have all that additional capital to compete even f more effectively longer term. So that, you know, so my, my point being and their point being is damage is being done right now. 
Now, this administration talks about short-term pain for long-term gain, and, and let's hope a lot of this is short-term. But there is damage being done right now, and a lot of it could be permanent, and the longer this goes on, the more permanent that damage is going to be because their overseas competitors, their advantage is just going to continue to grow and grow. They're going to get a, a stronger financial position, and our businesses are going to become in a, be a, in a weaker position. Yeah, I think you put on a great point. You know, one of the things I wrote down while you were speaking that uh, reminded me of the time when uh, Secretary Ross was on Fox Business talk, holding up a soup can um, and talking about how the tariffs would only increase the price of a can of soup by less than a penny and talked a little bit about um, how it would impact the price of a car only by half a percent. But um, to me, that seemed like the most out-of-touch thing. Um, it, it was like the definition of the swamp in my opinion, um, because as you're saying, that that penny on whatever the finished good is, is so much more when it comes to the bottom line for a business. Well, the Friday before I had our, our round table, I met with the Associated Building Contractors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these folks that build your homes. And because of the increased price of lumber, <coughs> as well as steel that they use, in, they, they're thinking that an average house in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, the cost of building that now is up about 10%. So, again, if, if it's $200,000, that's $20,000 increase in cost. And we, we still don't, you know, again, I think wages are starting to rise because we have a tight labor market. And if, if you know, the economy progresses the way it should, those, raise, those wages will continue to rise. But they can all be eaten up by the effects of the trade war if all of a sudden you're going to build a house and the, the cost of that has increased $20,000. Right, exactly. You know, we just saw yesterday the Tax Foundation come out with um, some analysis saying that they are seeing that if the trade war continues, that, um, that pretty much all the benefits from tax reform will be lost as a result of this policy. Are you hearing any of that um, in your state or from, from other colleagues in the Senate? Well, that, that's certainly my concern. And, again, it's, it's just so unfortunate because this president has done such a great job, this administration has done such a great job of bringing certainty and optimism. And again, I, I always, I do say that the, the most significant thing this president has done is he stopped adding to the regulatory burden. Mm -hmm. now again, having been, you know, in the private sector for 30-some years, I really understand how much time and energy and thought goes into <clears throat> complying with federal regulations, as opposed to taking that same time, thought, and energy toward improving your operation. Uh, producing better products, you know, being more creative. You're, you're sitting here trying to comply with multiple regulations. So the fact that we stopped adding to the regulatory burden gave businesses the, the certainty that at least for four years, they're not having to look over their shoulder and figure out, okay, what's, what's the new regulation coming down the pike? You know, what, what else could put me out of business or, or force me to, for example, lay off a, a loan officer and hire another compliance officer in a bank? So that is the most significant thing. And then, of course, the, 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 the tax... Uh, we made, we made, obviously, C-Corps far more competitive. You know, I, I did fight pretty hard, and, and we made pass-through businesses, 95% of American businesses, a little more uh, competitive as well. Uh, but, yeah, that, depending on the business, that tax benefit could all go up in smoke based on their increasing costs and, and probably more, more importantly, their loss of, of business, their loss of customers. Right, yeah. I mean, I can I can speak from personal experience. If my dad's a tool and die maker in the state of Michigan, he owns a tool and die company, and they're feeling it. And I can only imagine how many other companies in Illinois are feeling the same way. He literally mm -hmm. said to me one day a couple weeks ago, it feels like 2008 right now in the auto business.
industry because they're not getting any work and they're having to lay people off. Well, take a look at companies like Case or John Deere. If, if you have a disaster in the farm economy, and right now I would say that's there's a disaster. I mean, prices are already low in agriculture. This is going to drive them far lower. They can't afford new equipment. So, I mean, this, this again, an economy is just one great big interconnected uh, entity. And, yeah, you may have some little effect over here, but it, it's kind of like the flapping of a butterfly's wings. I mean, it can have significant downstream effect, and I think that's, that's certainly my concern. Exactly. So we've talked a lot about this, um, this hometown impact over the last, you know, 30 minutes or so. Um, but I want to switch a little bit to what can Congress do and what are you and your colleagues working on in the Senate to try and help fix this problem? Um, you know, many people know that Section 232, the law the president is using, um, Congress wrote itself out um, decades ago, so you can thank your, your predecessors for that. Um, but I want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, what do you feel about this being a, a constitutional issue um, with the, the right of Congress being to regulate commerce and and how are you hoping to work to improve that law for the future? First of all, I think it's absolutely a constitutional issue. I think past Congresses have given up so much of their Article I authority across the board. I mean, quick example, the Uranium Agreement. It was my amendment that uh, should have passed 100 to 0. If members of Congress were really upholding their oath of office to support and defend the Constitution, and that first defense has got to be your own equal, co-equal branch of government authority. Uh, it should have passed 100 to zero to deem that a treaty. Uh, I don't think we got, I don't think we got 40 votes, which is pretty sad. And it's, I think the same thing is true when it comes to trade and tariffs. I mean, it's obviously in, in the Constitution that the power to raise taxes, to impose excise, you know, duties that rides resides in the Article One branch, Congress. And you're right, back. You know, it's, it's actually a reaction to Smoot Hawley, mm -hmm. and you know, Congress. Uh, first of all, stupidly enacted Smoot-Hawley, did within a couple of years realize, oh my God, this is, this is really having a real problem. But they didn't have the, the courage to repeal it. So they gave back then President Roosevelt the authority to do it for them. And then that's been added on a couple of times. Now, it makes perfect sense. You can't have 535 members of Congress trying to negotiate trade deals. I mean, that'd be completely unworkable. So you do give that negotiating authority to the administration. But then, just like other treaties, and of course, you know, presidents have been taking their power and doing more and more executive agreements and not submitting them to ratification through the Senate. Um, that those types of trade deals certainly tariffs in excess of some limit. You know, kind of like the Reins Act. Mm -hmm. you know, if, if you have a regulatory burden more than hundred million dollars, that's got to come before Congress. And you can do the same type of thing for for tariffs if if it is you know, greater than X number of dollars, that tariff has to come back in front of Congress for ratification and approval. I mean, it makes perfect sense. We should reclaim that congressional authority as well as a bunch of others. But again, it's, it's mainly done because Congress is just trying to protect their own skins, making sure that they're not the ones responsible for doing something that just might be responsible, but not politically popular. Right, exactly. I mean, it's very similar to, I, th I think about how every several years Congress has to pass uh, the Generalized System of Preferences again, or the Miscellaneous Tariff Bill. Again, these are, these are bills that, um, that allow us to lower tariffs for, for certain purposes. 
Um, so if Congress has to act to lower tariffs, why doesn't Congress, why isn't Congress involved or have a role when we want to increase tariffs or increase taxes on the American people? And by the way, that, that's such an, again, let's reemphasize that. Tariff is just a fancy name for a tax exactly. on consumers. Again, I, I have no idea why anybody would think that'd be a popular thing to do. And people, just, I just don't think they're thinking about it properly and how it's going to affect them in their pocketbook. One, one, one of the things I liked about the Border Adjustment Tax, which I was completely opposed to, but it actually did start the debate that, you know, when you start talking about in taxing all imports by 20%, basically, people started realizing, well, I don't think I want the cost of goods that I'm buying go up 20%. So, so we started having that discussion, I think a very needed, necessary discussion, that you know, imports aren't bad. I, I, would much rather, I would much rather be exporting $2.3 trillion worth of goods, which is what we export, and import 2.9. Okay, we got about a, you know, a little more than five, $500 billion trade deficit. But export as opposed to only exporting a, a trillion dollars and having balance. As long as those imports are products that are high quality, low cost, and benefiting American consumers. You know, I remember buying my first big screen TV. Now, this is, this is productivity gains in technology, but also a competitive environment. Uh, paid a few thousand dollars. Now you can go to Walmart and buy, you know, 4K for 600 bucks. Okay, that, that is, people have to understand, that is what American consumers are benefiting from a system of trade around the world, where different countries have different competitive advantages, core competencies to do things, and we have our core competencies as well, and it, it all works out in the wash. Exactly, yeah, and, and, and you know that two-thirds of what we import every year are actually what we call intermediate goods. So they're either used to produce something else or they are machinery capital goods that are used for several years to, uh, to produce products here in America. So really our imports help us be more competitive on the world stage. And one of the things I talk about when I give speeches often about the, the genius of our founding and the you know, Declaration of Independence in 1776 with our mission statement, we hold these truths to be self-evident. I didn't realize I started giving that speech because it's you know what's made this country the marvel that it is is it's that concept of limited self-government combined with a book that was also published the exact same year, which I didn't realize. Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations in 1776. It's that that those two genius concepts of a free market system with the invisible hand. Again, you, I'm talking about the commissars in the Commerce Department. You know, U.S. commissars would be no more successful than Soviet Union. Okay, they just won't be. They, nobody is that smart to be able to outthink the marketplace. Now, the market's not perfect; it requires some regulation. But that invisible hand of billions of consumers making decisions, thousands, tens of thousands of businesses, figuring out what is the best way to source the highest quality and the lowest cost component, for example, for my manufactured part, part which will allow me to provide a, a better product at a lower cost to not only domestic customers, multiple export markets. The economy is such a complex and interrelated entity, and to have a government start imposing willy-nilly tariffs or taxes on one and then trying to grant waivers to another section to try and make it all balanced, it's impossible. It will never work. It'll, it will end up in disaster. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're starting to see the making of that. So my last question for you before we open up for a couple of um, questions from the audience is, um, you know, we spoke a little bit off stage about um, this relationship between trade and jobs and what is really, in your opinion, holding back Americans from being able to find that new job or being able to move up in, in their career or 
maybe being able to get back into the workforce have left with our, our labor force participation rate being Well, first low. of all, let, let's understand that it's not a question of not having enough jobs. Mm -hmm. It's a question of not having enough workers. And, you know, yes, there, there's a skills gap, but there's more of a worker gap. And part of the reason, you know, again, I've, I've been in manufacturing for 30-some years. It's been years since I really could tap into a very reliable source of, of, work, of, of a workforce. And as I've traveled around the state now in, in eight years in, in Wisconsin, not one manufacturing company, not one dairy farm can hire enough people. So part of the problem, you know, I've attributed two causes. First of all, we tell all of our kids you have to get a four-year degree. Which is great. If, if you know what you want to do with a four-year degree, fine. But not everybody is suited to go to college. And that also just robs other sections of our economy where you really don't need four years of college to make a great living. It also kind of implies that, ooh, factory work, you know, second-class status. Nothing could be further from the truth. All work has value. We also pay people not to work, which is a real problem. And it's really crimped mobility through our economy. You know, people just stay stuck in a, you know, high unemployment area, and they're not willing to move to the jobs. We have something called the Joseph Project, and where we're working with a inner-city church in Milwaukee. And it really got started by the Sheboygan Economic Development Committee coming to us saying, you know, we got 4,000 open jobs. And you know, I'm always saying, well, you've got all these jobs open, and yet you have these high pockets of unemployment. How, how can you make that connection? Well, we started making that connection through a, a, a church. And so very hardcore unemployed individuals now, you know, we bust them up, our, our journey into uh, Sheboygan, and th they have life-transforming jobs now. Uh, they're buying cars for the first time. They're, they're, they're tucking money away. But one of my frustrations is, well, okay, you got the job. You, you've been working there for a year. Why don't you move? And, and they're not. Uh, I, and I can't, I can't fully explain it. I mean, I, I had an opportunity in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I, live, I grew up in Minneapolis. I moved. It just kind of made sense. So I, I really I don't have a great explanation for that. Obviously, people are always a little reluctant to, to leave their families. But you know, we, we, we used to have far greater mobility in our economy. And you know, I would suggest people move the opportunity. Absolutely. More often than not. Yeah, and we're seeing that a little bit. Um, you know, some of our colleagues here, one of our colleagues here at Heritage, Stephen Moore, um, helps uh, with Alec to produce the Rich States, Poor States book. Um, and what it does, it looks at a lot of different factors that help make different states competitive. And one thing that they've looked at is this mobility, um, this shift of people moving from blue states to red states. You know, thinking of places like Texas and Florida that have low taxes that are it's easier for companies to do do business and individuals keep more of their money. Even better for the, for the blue states or, or states that are not very attractive for business investment and business expansions, take a look at the other states as, as a best practice and go, well, mm -hmm. how, come, how come they're growing employment? How come businesses are leaving, you know, one state and going down to, you know, for example, Texas? I mean, I tell you, Governor Walker's done a great job in Wisconsin. We've, we've gone up in the surveys dramatically because, first of all, he just welcomed businesses. As Lieutenant Governor, her, her main campaign theme was, you know, hey, Wisconsin, we're open for business. Just that alone is important signal to businesses that, you know, we're going to produce a welcoming environment. And, of course, that's what President Trump had done with, you know, by stopping adding to the regulatory burden and more competitive tax system, we made, you know, hey, America, we're, we're back open for business. We're, we're not going to penalize success. We're going to celebrate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. We're going to take a couple of questions from the audience. Um, uh, we'll have a microphone for you, so please um, state your name and your affiliation, and please keep your question to a question. That's all we ask. Uh, we'll do right here um, in the center. 
Hi, Brad Fortin with Inside U.S. Trade. Um, there's proposed legislation right now, the uh, Senator Corker's bill that would rein in um, the president's Section 232 authority. Um, do you think that that has any chance of getting a vote in the Senate? Um, a, a corresponding bill has recently been introduced in the House. You know, could there be a veto-proof veto majority, or do you think that you know that bill is going to be blocked? Um, and is there any other reason uh, that it, it could be blocked? Well, first of all, if I wasn't the first co-sponsor, I was one of the first. Uh, so I'm completely supportive of Again, that's just, to me, long-term makes sense. Congress has to reclaim that constitutional authority. We, we did take a test vote, non, basically a non-binding resolution to on one of the appropriation bills, and it got, I think, 88 votes. So it, it got a veto-proof majority. And I don't know how it would fare in the House, but you might, you know, every day that goes by, you know, if, if more members of Congress, uh, you know, set up roundtables and they talk to the businesses in their states that uh, are going to convey their concerns and the, the harm and damage being done right now, every day that goes by, I think uh, you probably have a better chance of passing that with a veto-proof majority. I, I'm, I'm hoping it's not necessary. You know, I'll support it, and we should do it long-term regardless. I'm hoping this administration uses the leverage that they're using right now with the 232 and the 301, uh, use that leverage, conclude these deals as quickly as possible, and return certainty. That's what I'm hoping happens. But, uh, no, I mean, the test case was we had, at least in the Senate, a veto-proof majority. Other questions? We probably have time for about one more. So I guess I'm asking if, uh, uh, if you had a choice between a Republican who supports uh, nationalism, tariffs, and crony capitalism, and a Democrat who came out as a free trader, would you support the Democrat over the Republican? I think you have to take a look at the totality of what they are, are actually proposing. Again, I, I, I give President Trump you know, high marks in terms of what he's already done for our economy on regulation and taxation. Uh, hopefully, we'll move beyond this as well. Absolutely. We have one more uh, question uh, in the back there. Thank you, Senator. Um, so my name is Axon Amendus from the Alliance for Fair Sugar Policy. Um, so in its current form, uh, the Canadian dairy operates uh, as a statutory handout to domestic dairy farmers while artificially tilting the playing field. And President Trump has been very vocal about this. You've seen it uh, at USTR as well as uh, one of the more contentious issues. However, the U.S. sugar program also operates as a handout and a command and control scheme through uh, basically tariff rate quotas, marketing allotments, and subsidies. Would you agree that instead of slapping more tariffs and creating more barriers, maybe we start by dismantling our own program? Well, first, let me, let me give you some facts on dairy, because I was in the White House, and, and President Trump started talking about how Candace was treating Wisconsin dairy so unfair. I, I just had to give him the facts. Uh, U.S. exports double in dairy to, to, to Canada than what we Imports about 227 billion dollars. 227 million dollars of exports. We import about 113 million, so there's 114 million dollar surplus of uh, dairy that we export. Uh, Mexico, for example, is Wisconsin's largest cheese market. So I mean, th th those are the facts on dairy. But no, I, I completely agree. I, I don't like I don't like subsidies. I don't like tariffs. I, mean, I don't like taxes on business. I, I like the free market operating freely. 
we we'll probably have time for one more question. Um, if we have one. Oh, sorry. I wasn't even paying attention. Over here on the far side. Please wait for the microphone. It's amazing what happens when you answer questions. I, I, so answers. Quickly, yeah. <laughs> you get more of them in. Uh, Dan Crocker, I'm actually with the Commerce Department Foreign Service, but also with the American Foreign Service Association. Uh, over the past couple of years, we've helped a lot of Wisconsin companies overseas with market barriers, especially I've served in Brazil for a few years and helped Harley-Davidson over there with some real problems that the Brazilian government was making. My question to you is, is there is there a role for Congress to send a strong signal to the Trump administration that opening up markets overseas, breaking down market barriers, addressing corruption, is the better way to enhance trade and correct the trade balance? We didn't really talk about what the real problem is. And the real problem really is out of our, out of our $552 billion trade deficit, you know, 60% of that is with China. And China is stealing our intellectual property. And they, they do it unabashedly. Uh, cyber theft, both in terms of industrial technology as well as military. I think public reports, they just hacked into a contract for our Defense Department and stole our, our submarine technology and tactics. So if you take a look at the main problem, which is China, and by the way, I'd recommend a, a great book to, to everybody, The Hundred Year Marathon by Michael Pillsbury. It really shows you what China's been doing for the last 60 years and the path they're on over the next 30 or 40 uh, to really replace the U.S. Uh, in terms of world, world economic power and, and probably gov governing systems as well. The way to address that is with the united front with the rest of the trading world. Uh, I agree with Prince, French President Macron. He said, this doesn't work when you're at war with everybody. And right now, we're, we're kind of in a trade war with everybody, and I don't see how that turns out well. I'd much rather be recognizing who our friends, who our allies are, yeah, do some tough negotiation. I think America has been very magnanimous. We're the world's largest market, uh, starting with the Marshall Plan. We've opened up our markets to help countries develop. I still want to do that. I, I, don't have a, I don't have a real problem with that, but we do need to address real trade abuses. And, and President Trump's completely right. China's the main problem. Uh, he is, he's introduced the, the word reciprocal into the conversation. I completely agree. You know, he's talked about let's have no tariffs. That'd be great if we could get everybody to agree to that. So, to me, having a well-functioning, free and fair and reciprocal world trading system is the best approach, and most, most governments do respect the rules, and the, the main problem is China, and we have got to be united as the rest of the free, free trade world and demand that China start adhering to the rules and stop stealing all of our all of our industrial secrets. I mean, they're, they're on that path, I mean, th and they will continue to do it unless we really stand up. So, again, what, what President Trump is trying to accomplish, I, I have no problems with, and, and there's so many good things he has done with our economy, and the end game in terms of trying to get China to behave is, is right. I just don't see how this is going to do it. And, again, I, I would just encourage everybody, you know, bring, bring your member of Congress the example so they can bring that to our trade representatives. So. Uh, they, they might come to their senses and, and end this trade war before it totally spins out of control. Well, thank you so much, uh, Senator Johnson, for joining us today. I really appreciated all of your insight, and it's always a joy to have you, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Um, and keep, keep fighting the good fight, and we'll look forward to seeing what comes next. So thank you, and thank the Heritage Foundation.
we are, we're going to take just one moment to switch over to the panel, um, and, uh, and then we'll get started with the next section of the program. It'll just take probably about a minute and a half. much again for joining us and um, I just take a, a moment just to uh, thank Senator Johnson again for for coming and, and headlining the event this morning um, so I want to move into the the panel discussion we're going to have today you know the title of this event is trade wars are bad and America is losing um, it's time to ditch section 232 tariffs and I think that really um, will will come to show uh, during our discussion of the panel here about you know what what's really happening on the ground in America uh, when it comes to how these tariffs, specifically on steel and aluminum, are impacting the um, different sectors of the U.S. economy? And we brought in today um, what I would probably consider some non-traditional perspectives on where the impact is hitting. You know, you hear always hear a lot of steel and aluminum users. Um, you always hear a lot about agriculture and retaliation. Um, but I wanted to bring in today some voices to speak about um, some impacts that you might not be hearing and that may, um, may not be the first things that come to your mind. Um, so with that, I'm just gonna take a moment to introduce our speakers and, and welcome them to the Heritage Foundation. First, uh, we have John Gray. Uh, since 2008, John Gray has served as Senior Vice President for Policy and Economics for the Association for American Railroads, the world's leading railroad policy research and standard setting organization for the Class I freight railroads of the United States, Canada, and Mexico. In his role, Gray is responsible for conducting and supervising economic, financial, statistical, and cost studies dealing with various aspects of the rail industry. His duties include the analysis of data related to railroads and their economic and regulatory environment, and the development of policy positions on current rail issues. Prior to joining AAR in 2008, Gray held commercial operating strategic and management positions at Union Pacific, Southern Pacific, Burlington Northern Railroad, ARCO Alaska, and the Alaska Railroad. Gray also served in a faculty position at the University of Alaska. A veteran of the United States Army, Gray has served as a commissioned officer and was based in Germany for four years. Following uh, Mr. Gray, we have Aaron Padilla. Um, Dr. Aaron Padilla is a senior advisor for international policy at the American Petroleum Institute. He leads API's work to determine and represent the oil and gas industry's public policy positions on key international issues, especially trade and global economic and sustainability policy. Aaron is a member of the U.S. government's Industry Trade Advisory Committee on Energy and Energy Services. In the last 12 years, he has worked in 30 countries across six continents, Prior to joining API, Aaron worked for Chevron as Senior Advisor for Global Issues and Public Policy, with responsibilities for both asset-level support and representing the company globally for related policy initiatives. Dr. Padilla is a Marshall Scholar and a Truman Scholar, and he completed his, oh man, uh, Master's of Philosophy? 
Sonas, yes, and his PhD at the University of Cambridge and his bachelor's degree from Stanford University. And finally, on the far end, we have Maria Ziba. I hope I pronounced that correctly, Maria. Good. Um, Maria Ziba is the Director of International Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council and helps represent 60,000 U.S. pork producers in Washington, D.C. She works on NPPC's trade policy program, which focuses on opening, maintaining, and increasing market access for U.S. pork. Prior to joining NPPC, Ms. Ziva was a trade policy manager for the National Milk Producers Federation and the U.S. Dairy Export Council. She has also worked at the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Foreign Agricultural Service. Ms. Ziva holds a master's degree in international commerce and policy from George Mason University. That's where I'm getting my master's now. Um, and she received her bachelor's degree from the University of California, Riverside, with a double major in political science, international affairs, and Spanish. She is fluent in three languages and has lived in Washington, D.C., Southern California, Argentina, and Brazil. Please join me in welcoming our panelists. And y'all are welcome to go up to the podium to speak, or you can speak seated, whatever you prefer. Thank you, Tori, and uh, also thanks to the, um, uh, the foundation for the invitation to talk to you folks today about trade. It's something that uh, uh, our industry regards as a, uh, a critical element, uh, almost a survival element at this point in time. Uh, when Tori uh, introduced me, she was talking about the fact that our organization has uh, rail members in uh, Canada and Mexico in addition to the United States. Uh, that's, that is the case, but it, it goes beyond that in that we also have, have membership uh, worldwide. Uh, we have uh, a, a large uh, contingent of railroad suppliers that um, uh, market their goods worldwide as well as uh, within North America. Uh, the, one of the things, if you're in the, in the uh, transportation business, whatever it is, one of the things that makes it interesting is that you are in almost inevitably involved in the business of everybody else because you have to be able to deal with the business realities that your customers face. Um, and your customers uh, have a variety of economic stimuli that they have to react to. Uh, there are uh, enormous numbers of ways that uh, you, you are involved in their business directly. Uh, without them, you have no business, and largely without you, they have no business. And so. Uh, we're we're kind of we're kind of that logistics component in the middle. Whether and again, regardless of what type of transportation we're in. Now, we uh, a couple years ago, we started uh, having uh, even during the um, um, during the um, during the election time, we started having concerns about uh, the trade issues that were coming up. Uh, quite frankly, regardless of which candidate was. Uh, might be interested in, uh, in uh, 2016. And so we started doing some work uh, so that by early 2017 we would have an understanding of where our business was, where the, what, what trade meant to our, to our, uh, to our uh, members. Uh, 
And if we, what we had good data on, of course, was the rail members, uh, not, not as much data on the suppliers. But among the rail members, what we discovered was that about 35% of our business is international trade in one form or another. So a huge percent of what we do is, is trade related. We can't walk away from trade and, and have a healthy and uh, have a healthy, healthy rail industry. Now, when we looked and compared that to what it was in 1998, 20 years ago, um, it, back then it was about 20% of our business was in trade. So the, 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 whole business, the whole business model has changed for us, where we are far more dependent upon trade, uh, international trade, than we have been in the past. Um, in terms of whether it's overseas or NAFTA trade, well, back in, uh, back in 1998, that was just about even. Uh, it was half overseas and half NAFTA. Uh, if you look at it today, it's about 20% uh, overseas and 15% NAFTA. So the overseas, uh, the overseas is um, uh, about 60% of the, of the trade business today. Uh, the, the thing that has really changed, though, is the composition of the trade that we've seen. Back in 1998, it was about, uh, it was, exports were slightly smaller than the imports. About 9% uh, of our business was export and 11% was imports. If you look at, look at that today, it, the exports have doubled. They, they've gone up, they, they've increased 100% in, the last, uh, in the last 20 years. The imports, on the other hand, and this goes along with what uh, Senator Johnson was uh, talking about, the imports have gone, only gone up about 50% during that time period. The other item that uh, was, was striking in an, uh, the change that we saw, we've seen during that period has been the Canada-Mexico trade in which we participate. Um, obviously, the, we don't have, we don't have a, uh, anything in that game. Uh, uh, other than the fact that we haul it across the United States. Back in 1998, there was one, we, we hauled about 100,000 tons of that type of trade. 100,000 tons is, uh, put in perspective, is about 12 trains in a year. It's almost nothing. Uh, today, it's the equivalent of about 11 to 12 million tons uh, and that uh, uh, we haul back and forth. It's strictly Canada-Mexico trade. And so it, it, we're talking about something closer to about four trains a day rather than 12 a year now. So the, the, the whole dynamic that we work with in the trade business has changed. Now, when you're in the railroad business, it's uh, a lot of your business is focused around heavy industry. Uh, if you, uh, it's focused around heavy industry. Secondly, it's focused around agriculture. So a lot of the things that we haul are exactly the things that uh, <clears throat> the administration has talked about protecting uh, in, the, in this business. So let's look at what, what in the export side where the increases have been. It's been in coal, it's been in chemicals, it's been in grains, food products, processed food products, machinery, auto parts, motor vehicles, ores, minerals, forest products, all of that, all of it heavy, all of it heavy industry. And that's been, that's been where our export growth has been. 
Um, on the other hand, if you look at the, at the imports, um, most of that has been consumer goods. Again, it follows very closely along with the pattern that uh, the Senator was describing in, uh, in his comments. Uh, and then finally, for our employees, um, this is a big deal. Um, the, about 50,000 of our employees are, involved, are used to support trade. Uh, and if you look at the wages uh, and uh, benefits for those employees, it amounts to about $6 billion a year for those people. Uh, we're, our people are well paid, and uh, they're highly productive, and the, uh, the net result is that uh, when, when you damage trade, you damage the livelihood of a lot of these, uh, these individuals. Now, finally, there are a number of um, concepts that we have, we have learned that we have to live by uh, if you're going to be involved in trade, and particularly trade in the, uh, uh, under the conditions that it is right now uh, in, uh, in the, uh, the economic structure that is in the market these days. Uh, first of all, you have to recognize, and you have to recognize very early that the simple import-export models of the past are, very, are largely irrelevant today in so, many, in so many respects. They do not even begin to reflect the complexities of modern production and logistics uh, supply chains. Uh, in these modern chains, goods frequently pass back and forth across international boundaries several times before they are actually put into a consumer market. Uh, and uh, each time they do, if you have the tariffs, or as the senator said, the taxes on, on these goods, you're increasing the cost of those goods without increasing the value of them. So uh, we, part of what is important to recognize today, what we have learned, is that um, the only, only way that the modern production systems work is if you have free or near free trade uh, to make them work. Secondly, the um, trade patterns are very complex today. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, uh, variations in the way that trade goes on today. If you look back uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was much simpler. Uh, something went into a country, it was, it was used there. Something went into another country, it was used there. That's not the case today. Uh, logistics systems have become extraordinarily complex in, in the process of seeking out the most efficient way to manage their business. And so we have to reflect that in what we do. The other thing, uh, particularly that is focused, uh, uh, an important focus for us, is that the trade patterns that we see today reflect deep integration of the three North American economies. That is, uh, is incredibly intense integration that we are seeing in those economies today. And it is, it is an integration that you take apart only at your own risk. It is not, it is not one that is, can, be, can be dealt with in, in simple terms. Trade also, we know, understand, is always 
uh, is never fair, uh, rather is never a win-lose proposition. Both parties have to be winners in trade, which means that you have to have efficient trading. The more efficient that trading becomes, the more there is to win for both the parties in the trade. Now, this is an absolute concept that there has that the trade has to be win-win. Uh, there is, uh, if trade is not win-win, if there is a loser in it, trade stops. It's, that's very simple. It's like any, it's like any uh, commercial transaction, unless both sides have something that they are receiving a value out of the transaction, the transaction doesn't happen. Uh, the other thing that has come, become very evident is that in the last, in the last 15, 20 years, there have been a number of new product types that have developed, uh, new processes in manufacturing. And each of the, and many of these are offering new opportunities in uh, international trade that we haven't been able to take advantage of in the past. Um, one of the one of the examples that I always point to in this is the uh, development of ethanol. Okay, ethanol in itself uh, is not the opportunity, but there is a byproduct of ethanol, and it's called dried distillers grains and animal feed. And that has become extraordinarily popular in overseas markets. And we are seeing ports, uh, small ports, particularly on the West Coast, that had very little business in the past, that have taken on the burden of moving these dry distillers grains and have become very uh, active in, in this process. There are things like this going on because of changes in industrial output and the way industrial output is produced in the United States that are happening all over. This is one example. You can find many of them. And finally, and this, this is also uh, one that we uh, have found is almost uh, never violated, is that trade by its nature uh, seeks efficient production. Uh, the drive towards efficiency that you have in this always, almost always means that the business of the participants in trade some of the most valuable business that they do. Uh, and it forces the, com uh, the competitive landscape for domestic businesses. It ups, it ups the bar for everybody. And in fact, that you have you, the efficiency, the trade uh, drive, and the value that it creates. So with that, I will, I will leave it to uh, uh, a couple of my customers to uh, talk about some of the things that they are they are involved in. Thank you, John, very much for that. It's a perfect segue to some remarks I'd like to share on behalf of the U.S. oil and natural gas industry. As John mentioned, we're certainly customers to uh, many of the member companies of AAR. And just recently, uh, the heads of our associations have penned, along with their colleague at the American Chemistry Council, uh, an, an op-ed that outlines many of the same points that John and I and Maria Tory and Senator Johnson have been articulating around the potential downsides uh, of a lingering um, and escalating trade dispute that is represented by these uh, policymaking actions of the administration. I work for API, and we're a trade association of oil and natural gas companies that represent over 625 corporate members that come from all segments of the oil and natural gas industry. So that's exploration and production in the upstream, 
that's transportation in the midstream, and that's uh, manufacturing and retail and distribution in the downstream, and then also the service and supply companies that um, are the uh, companies that supply the um, services and the manufactured inputs to all the rest of our industry across those market segments. And so I can speak to the specific experiences of our member companies with regards to the Section 232 tariffs, uh, the Section 301 tariffs, the NAFTA negotiations, and some of the real and current uh, negative impacts that Senator Johnson also alluded to and was able to illustrate in the case of many of his constituents in Wisconsin. Uh, I first, I'd like to give you some insight into the experience of our member companies with regards to the Section 232 tariffs and the process that the Department of Commerce is administering to hear petitions seeking relief from the tariffs for uh, specific products that would be excluded from the taxes that would be levied on U.S. imports. Of the 20 and then perhaps going on 30,000 petitions that are now in the Department of Commerce docket, uh, by our count, about 104 of those are petitions from API member companies. And their requests for product exclusions on a variety of steel products that go into the infrastructure of our industry. So we really are the steel users that Senator Johnson alluded to who are negatively impacted by the uncertainty, the higher costs, um, the restrictions on imports that the 232 tariffs and quotas represent. So these product exclusion petitions from our member companies are for products such as oil country tubular goods or OCTGs. This is the steel that goes downhole in exploration and production to protect the well casing. Uh, it's for line pipe that's used in the construction of pipelines. It's for other products like coiled tube and rolled, uh, rolled sheet and lamination and electrical steel. So a variety of steel inputs that go into our industry. So far, our member companies uh, that have uh, put in those 104 petitions have had rulings from the Department of Commerce on, by our last count, uh, and as has been published in the docket by the Department of Commerce, uh, 21 petitions. 13 of those petitions have been denied, and eight of those petitions have been granted. And we see a couple of things emerging from the way in which those have been administered so far. First of all, uh, for some of the petitions from our member companies, the same sorts of products that were approved were also products that were denied. Uh, and so uh, there doesn't seem to be consistency even in the very small sample set of our member companies' petitions and the rulings that are coming out. Some of the petitions have been denied on the basis of their being uh, deemed to be an incomplete submission. Our member companies and we at API have no idea what that means. Uh, the sheer uh, number of petitions in the docket has reduced the availability of commerce staff to be able to uh, expand on the very short uh, ruling explanation that's given in a one-page document that petitioners receive when their petition is either granted or, or denied. And then for some of the other denials that our member companies have experienced in their petitions, it's been done on the basis of the Department of Commerce deeming that there is a, a sufficiently comparable product that a U.S. manufacturer can, uh, can make and supply to our member companies. And what we've argued from the beginning of the process is that deference should be given to an individual company to be able to source a product from a manufacturer who meets the precise specifications for performance and quality standards that they require for their products. And in our member companies' cases, the petitions that they have submitted for product exclusions represent products 
for whom their precise quality and performance standards cannot be met by U.S. domestic manufacturers. So they're going to a competitive overseas manufacturer who can provide them with a product that you cannot source in the U.S. market. Yet the Department of Commerce is deeming in their adjudication of individual petitions that there is a sufficiently comparable product in the market that does not precisely meet our member companies' specifications, but that should be good enough for them. And so therefore, they're denied their petition for an exclusion from the tariff under the 232 policies. Where do the products come from that our member companies have petitioned for product exclusions? They come from Japan, Greece, India, Mexico, Italy, Austria, the Czech Republic, China, Slovakia, Belgium, Germany, and South Korea. It's mostly a list of countries that are either NATO or other military treaty allies. Hardly threats to U.S. national security and hardly our adversaries when it comes to either national security or to our trade relationships. And so our member companies have, have called into question from the very beginning of the investigation and the policymaking the broad national security justification that's been used for Section 232 uh, import restrictions. And we continue to call on the administration to, um, as Senator Johnson uh, put it, um, back away from the imposition of import restrictions to quickly use whatever they represent in terms of leverage to exempt countries with whom we share national security interests and with whom we share a competitive and, and fair playing field when it comes, comes to trade. So that's a snapshot of the impact of the Section 232 import restrictions. I'd like to also briefly mention the Section 301 policymaking and the tariffs that have already been implemented on, on that front. Our member companies are also impacted by, by that, and it's in a slightly different way. Uh, many of the products on which the United States has levied tariffs under the Section 301 authorities represent industrial inputs to the supply chains of the service and supply companies in our industry. So there are many hundreds of different smaller industrial components that go into making um, larger final manufactured goods that are then installed in the infrastructure of our industry. And then not only are we negatively impacted by the taxes on the imports of those products, but the retaliation that China is undertaking and that they're signaling that they will escalate will now begin to touch on the products that we export to China. China has threatened retaliation on crude oil and refined products in this next round of $16 billion worth of, of imports that the U.S. plans to impose tariffs on. And then as we move toward a potential imposition of tariffs on all of U.S. imports from China, then uh, LNG and natural gas and the whole of our hydrocarbons exports to China would be subject to their retaliatory tariffs. The messages that we've been conveying to the administration as we express the oil and natural gas industry's concerns around these import restrictions and the whole of this policymaking is first that it compromises the administration's own policy goals on energy. The administration talks about wanting to maximize U.S. production of oil and natural gas and U.S. manufacturing of refined products and to maximize the exports of those products to the world. Uh, inevitably, import restrictions under Section 232 and 301 compromises the administration's own goals on energy. So there's a trade-off there that we work to articulate for the administration to bear in mind as it pursues these policies. And ultimately, the effect of all of that has a, a negative impact on energy consumers and on uh, the, the, the energy goals of the administration that benefit energy consumers. The, way in which the import restrictions have been imposed 
um, increase a degree of risk and uncertainty for energy investments in the United States. Uh, a classic example of that is one of the denials of one of our member companies' petitions for an exemption for a line pipe that they import from a manufacturer in the EU. Uh, the, the denial was made on the basis that there is a sufficiently comparable product available here in the U.S., which our member company disagrees with in terms of their own product specifications. They reached the investment decision on the need for that line pipe and the whole of that pipeline project before the administration implemented these tariffs. So they had an expected rate of return that they were, that they were planning on in their uh, allocation of capital. With the imposition of the tariff, in the meantime, it essentially, uh, it essentially works um, for the, the member company that's affected as a retroactive tax on their investment. So you're introducing a set of increased costs retroactively on a firm's investment decision. And going forward, for other firms that are in their position, there's a whole degree of uncertainty that will have a harmful effect on investments in the oil and natural gas industry here in the United States. And we call on the administration to reduce and eliminate that uncertainty that has been imposed that Senator Johnson also was able to ar articulate for all of us in order to, uh, again, return coherence to and a, a synergy between the goals that the administration has been pursuing in terms of uh, tax reform, uh, regulatory reform, and um, in, in promoting trade in a way that's, that's constructive and, and helpful rather than harmful, as we've seen from, from these impacts to the energy industry of the Section 232 and the Section 301 policymaking. Uh, so with that, I'll, I'll end with my snapshot of the oil and natural gas industry and hand it over to Maria to tell some of the effects that uh, she and her members are feeling uh, on the agricultural side. Thank you so much, Tori, for the invitation to be among these distinguished panelists this morning. Um, I'm with the National Pork Producers Council, which is an association of 42 state pork producer organizations that serves as the global voice for the U.S. pork industry. Uh, MPPC represents the interests of America's 60,000 pork producers. It, last year in 2017, pork producers marketed over 120 million hogs which generated a total cash receipt of more than $20 billion and supported over half a million U.S. jobs. Pork is the number one, pork is the number one protein consumed in the world. And in the past 10 years, the United States, on average, has been the top global exporter of pork. In any given year, U.S. pork is shipped to over 100 countries. The U.S. typically is the lowest cost producer in the world. So when you couple affordability with the safety and quality that are second to none, you really see why consumers worldwide value U.S. pork. Exports of pork add significantly to the bottom line of each and every U.S. pig farmer. U.S. exports to pork and pork products last year totaled 5.4 billion pounds, which was a record year for us, and that valued at about um, $6.5 billion. This represents almost 27% of our total production, and those ac exports added over $53 to the value of each hog marketed. 
To put this into context, the average price of a hog last year marketed was $147. So $53 of which is directly attributed to exports. And you can see why our industry is so dependent on our trading partners. Exports support approximately 110,000 US jobs. And because we're such an export juggernaut, um, it's an attractive candidate for trade retaliation, which is why we're here today. Our industry has the dubious distinction of being on the retaliation list of three, three retaliation lists, I should say. China and Mexico, in response to the U.S. tariffs on the 232 steel and aluminum. And then China again put us on the retaliation list in response to our 301 duties. Those are very important markets to our producers. Mexico is our largest volume market and our number two value market. So last year, we exported over 800,000 metric tons of pork to Mexico, which is valued at over $1.5 billion. China, on the other hand, was our number two volume export market where we exported more than 495,000 metric tons. And that means that equates to $1.1 billion in exports just to China. There really is never a good time to have an export disruption, but the timing of this is, is particularly bad for our producers. Um, the US pork industry is in the middle of an export driven expansion. Our production is projected to grow by almost 5% this year alone, and then at least another 3% next year. As the world's most competitive producer of pork, the U.S. pork industry was anticipating increases in access to Japan and Vietnam through the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And we were counting on shipping more pork under existing free trade agreements that's why the expansion. Those exports prospects uh, were also, also prompted the construction of five new pork packing plants around the, the country. And totaled that next year, if, after these plants come online, we're looking at an increased packing capacity of 10%. And that's up from levels in 2015, so 10% from 2015. In fact, the U.S. pork industry is expected to process a record number of hogs just this year at nearly 127 million hogs, and that's up from the 120.5 million from last year. Obviously, things have, have changed for our producers and our industry. The Chinese duties have had a negative effect on our exports, um, with shipments through May have been down 18% for the year. And that's according to data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Over the past six weeks, the United States has exported almost no pork to China. And while exports to Mexico are up slightly at 6% throughout the year for, for the first five months of the year, the numbers really don't reflect 
the tariffs that were placed, the 10% initial, and then the 20% um, increased tariff on our product. Ambassador Greg Dowd, the chief agricultural negotiator with the Office of the U.S. Trade Representatives, summed up our situation recently to our producers. And he said, quote, the tip of the spear in all of this right now is your pork, end quote. Um, as of January 20, 2018, Iowa State University did an economic analysis um, forecasting modest profits for this year. But now, because of the retaliatory tariffs, we're expecting um, not so modest profits. Our, we're expecting producer losses for the year of more, more than $18 per pig. So when you add all that up, we're looking at industry losses of about $2 billion, and that's conservative. While our producers are feeling this financial pain, they also recognize that the Trump administration is, is trying to make global trade more reciprocal and advantageous for the United States, as the Senator mentioned earlier this morning. The administration recently opened a couple of new markets to U.S. pork, and that's Argentina and Paraguay, and I'm actually heading to Argentina later this week to celebrate that market access. And they're currently working with us to open several other markets, such as Brazil, India, and Thailand, have, that have been closed for U.S. pork. Our producers understand that the administration is trying to balance many interests in trying to realign U.S. trade policy. Um, they also know that putting trade and economic security at the center of national security and foreign policy Redefining the trade relationship with China and modernizing NAFTA are really complex matters. Producers also know that the president is committed to strengthening American agriculture and the rural economy. And they acknowledge that the tax and the regulatory reforms that he implemented have set a new course and significantly improved economic growth. President Trump, Agriculture Secretary Purdue, and the administration officials have made it clear that they have the back of the American farmer. Um, just one example of their commitment in the days following China's imposition of its in initial 25% duty on pork and other agricultural products, the president told Secretary Purdue, quote, assure your farmers out there we're not going to allow them to be casualties if this trade, dis trade dispute escalates. We're going to take care of our American farmers, end quote. The administration has told us that it will take steps to mitigate pork producers' financial pain. But let me be clear that the best outcome for our producers is the restoration of lost trade and the opportunity for increased exports. So it really should come as no surprise that we're really eager to see a completed NAFTA, among other things that will exclude Mexico and Canada from the 232 tariffs. We're also eager to see a deal reached with China that will resolve the problems at issue. And we're clamoring for new FTA negotiations with Japan. Japan is our top value export market and we're really concerned about the impact of the EU-Japan FTA and the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the TPP-11. Um, this is gonna have a, a negative effect on our exports. Pork farmers 
are at the front line of the realignment for U.S. trade policy. They're showing tremendous fortitude and patience, but make, more mistake, make no mistake, it's a really painful process to go through. Um, we had a financial collapse 20 years ago, and it was really bad on our producers to see them uh, lose everything that they had worked so hard. Now, we're not at that point right now, but the longer that the retaliation continues, the more difficult it's going to become for our producers, especially our smaller producers, to get out from under this. The bottom line is that our pork producers are shouldering a disproportionate share of trade retaliation against the United States, and we need relief soon now. Um, so my, my request to all of you is to, on your way home tonight, if you can stop by the grocery store and buy some pork, <laughs> that will really help our producers. Um, and, and I'll end it right there on, on, a, on a lighter note. Well, thank you so much, John, Aaron, and Maria, for your very valuable comments. Um, I think it provides an interesting uh, perspective for us to hear from all of these different industries and to really learn that the impacts on um, the U.S. economy are widespread and, and are not solely based in one area or on one aspect of the economy. So when you, when you start doing things to, um, to fix or adjust what you see as being a problem in one sector, it's going to have these rippling effects throughout that are almost uncontrollable. And, and we hope that this problem will get resolved before those effects become even more grave. So I want to take the chance as uh, the moderator's privilege to ask the first question of our panel, and then I'll open it up to some audience questioning. Um, so, you know, Maria mentioned a great point where we're talking about the United States, in my opinion, being left behind um, in the world trading system. I actually just had the opportunity to speak with some, um, some European delegations last week um, and how they're saying, well, well, thank you. We would love to write the rules for trade for the world um, and advancing things like the U.S.-EU free trade agreement, or sorry, the, the Japan-EU free trade agreement. And then, of course, you know, our, our allies in Canada and Mexico being involved in the, t in the new TPP. So what, what do each of you think about where, the, where America's role is in trade now um, and, how we need, and how we can improve that role in, in the international community to, to continue to be a leader and maybe even to work with some of these allies uh, for the, against the adversary that Senator Johnson mentioned earlier in regards to China? I can go first. Um, you know, our producers... Japan is, is a huge market for us. We exported well over a billion dollars last year, and we need to continue to have that market access. They take some of our product that we really don't, we can't market it elsewhere. They, they, it's, when it comes to pork production, it's, um, you know, some countries really like loins, some countries really like hams, and we have really started producing and, and exporting and developing those markets to uh, feed those specific demands. We were really disappointed when the United States withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And then it was a, the second blow when we saw what the Japan-EU deal looked like, because essentially they copy and pasted the market access that 
our negotiators had negotiated over years on U.S. pork. So what we're looking at is our biggest competitors in the world, the EU, um, essentially going into Japan and having a competitive advantage in that market. As to address specifically your question, you know, for us, we want to set the rules. We've seen time and time again that when the United States sets the rules on agriculture and agricultural exports, we win. Um, U.S. pork, for example, we export to more to the 20 countries with which we have a free trade agreement than to the rest of the world combined. And that includes some of these top export markets that I just mentioned, which is China and Japan, which we don't have an FTA with. And, you know, on technical issues like sanitary and phytosanitary, it's really important for the United States to be there and to set those rules. Because if we're not setting the rules, then our other trading partners are going to set them for us, and it puts us at a disadvantage in the future. API member companies uh, support two things with regards to Tori's question. The first is we support U.S. free trade agreements with other countries and additional free trade agreements. API member companies supported the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and we would seek for the United States to reconsider and rejoin that effort and to expand the number of other countries with whom we have a free trade agreement. That's especially important on the dimension of natural gas exports from the United States. The U.S. Natural Gas Act stipulates that if there's a free trade agreement in place between the U.S. and another country, then U.S. natural gas exports to that country are automatically liberalized. Um, if there's not a free trade agreement, then it requires a separate determination in the national interest by the Department of Energy on a case-by-case, country-by-country basis. Um, which has been uh, workable for our member companies, but it's certainly streamlined and made automatic by the existence of a free trade agreement. And then secondly, we support um, efforts that the U.S. would pursue multilaterally with our allies to work within and through the WTO and the rules-based system in order to advance our trade interests and to address some of the market-distorting practices of some of our trade adversaries, uh, such as China. We think that the best solution is to work to agree to a set of reforms and advancements within and through the WTO, rather than through a more of a managed trade bilateral negotiation where every product and every trade relationship is up for renegotiation and potentially held hostage toward a greater goal. I would, uh, you know, I, first of all, I'd echo a few of the things that have already been said, but I think there's there's a there's one thing that's important to understand right now, and that is that the the current atmosphere, more than anything, is creating uncertainty, and there is probably little that most businesses dread as much as uncertainty in in their in their in their prospects, um, and that's to me that is why it's important that we do we, whatever actions that we take, that those actions be designed to restore some type of certainty to the, to the markets. Um, the, other, the other part of that that I, I see as very important is simply the relative size of the U.S. economy. If, if, we had been, if we had been undertaking something like this, say, 40, 50 years ago, 
there's no question that the United States uh, economy was so much larger than anything else in the world at the time that it could have uh, influenced the, um, uh, the the remainder of the world very quickly into um, uh, heading in the direction that it would like to have gone. And in fact, the U.S. did that in, in a number of uh, situations 40 or 50 years ago. However, today with the emergence of both China and the EU as very large economies in their own right, um, there are options beyond the U.S. And we have to recognize that those options will be used and can be used against us. Uh, those options are dangerous to us and uh, the, it, is, it is essential if we are going to correct the largest of the problems that we, that we um, believe that we have in today, uh, that being with China, that we, have, um, that we have the alliances in place that are necessary to minimize the options to the United States that uh, gives us the power to do. One of the things that Maria said was very important there, set the rules, set the standards for uh, transaction. Uh, it's, important, uh, it's important that if we're going to do that, we cannot pr allow the rest of the world to have almost unlimited options. Thank you. Okay, we'll go ahead and take a few questions from the audience. Uh, thank you again. Please join me in just thanking our panel really quickly for all of their great comments. Um, so uh, again, same, same rules apply. We'll have a microphone, so please identify yourself and your affiliation, and please keep your question to a question. Uh, we want to be able to get as many in as we can. We'll hook down here in the front. Carlos Avillon, Bank for Central American Economic Integration. And the question is actually for you. Um, I never get to answer questions when I'm moderating. <laughs> Although I'm a free trader and I like very much the foreign trade regime of Singapore, I was wondering what do you think is better for the U.S.? Uh, the economy growing at 4% annually on a sustained basis with high trade barriers and numerous regulations, or growing at 1% with free trade and few regulations? Well, thank you so much for your question. I really appreciate it. So, um, I mean, I, I believe that what this administration wants to do is to create an, an environment in the United States that's the best place to do business. And they're doing that by lowering taxes and lowering regulations and making America an attractive place for companies to invest and grow and create jobs. Now, in my opinion, the, the most, one of the most important parts of that pro-economic growth playbook that um, not only is the administration attempting to use, but the Heritage Foundation has been promoting for decades, um, free trade is an essential part of that. Part of our businesses in America being successful and being able to grow and prosper and create jobs is for them to be able to sell their, their products. Um, and so we need to not only be able to export those products around the world, but we need to be able to import the 60 roughly 60% of what we import being intermediate goods to make us competitive in that world stage. So I don't think that any of these uh, pro-growth policies are mutually exclusive, but when they're all brought together, it's going to help us create an America that um, is able to flourish and create jobs. Um, 
I always like to put somebody in somebody else's shoes. So this is for Maria. Uh, how do you think your counterpart in Denmark is feeling right now? I think that our competitors are doing very well. <laughs> um, you know, when our industry faces our biggest competitors, for example, in China are, are the EU and in Canada. We're facing over 60% duty into the Chinese market. And as I mentioned, we're practically not exporting um, anything in China. I think that creates an opportunity for um, not only our competitors like Denmark and, and Germany, but also for domestic producers in China to grow the market and to develop these um, niche marketing campaigns. So I think, you know, it's probably, they're happy. <laughs> That's probably what I would say. Okay, anyone else? Hi, Brett Fortin with Inside U.S. Trade. Um, what recourse um, do your groups have at this point if, um, on whether it's the 232 exclusion process or just trying to avoid retaliation? Um, is there any way that um, are, are you guys going to the White House to, to try and influence the administration? Or at this point, has that um, has the response been such that you're trying other avenues? I I, I go ahead and start on that one. Um, I know from our, our our perspective that we spend a lot of time, uh, not just uh, our organization, but our members individually, um, trying to influence, uh, certainly trying to influence the, uh, the people that are involved in the negotiating process, uh, as well as the uh, policy level uh, within, within the administration. Uh, now, uh, because because we, our membership, uh, our primary membership is in the three North American nations, uh, we, it, it's, it's not simply influencing uh, one party in that, that uh, we've, also, we've also had uh, conversations in Canada and Mexico on some of the same, on some of the same issues. Um, the, um, uh, the other part is that uh, like, uh, as was mentioned on the oil field goods, uh, a number of things that that we that we obtain and that we use in our business in North America exclusively um, are not manufactured in North America. Uh, and um, the uh, one one of those is uh, the type of uh, uh, rail that we use in the track for. Um, heavy haul situations where we're moving uh, very heavy goods and lots of it, uh, where we'll say, say we'll be moving several hundred million tons of something a year over a piece of track. Uh, that rail comes from a, a mill in Japan, and right now we're paying, we're paying the duties on that, that rail. Uh, I will say that uh, the quality of that rail is sufficient that it is worthwhile to pay the duties rather than to use American rail, uh, which, which is of the type that is produced in the U.S. Um, the other, another area is in um, uh, the containers that are used in uh, intermodal business. 
there is a uh, container type that is unique to North America. It's a 53-foot high, high cube container. It's used only in domestic, only in U.S. domestic uh, and uh, U.S. Canadian, U.S. Mexican markets. It is, in fact, the foundation for exporting um, auto parts, uh, export of auto parts that we do both to Mexico and to Canada. Very, very heavy, heavy traffic um, daily. And uh, we are, are fighting, we have asked for an exemption for tariffs on, on uh, the uh, import of those 53-foot containers because there are none made in this country. There are only two manufacturers in the world, both of them in China. And so, uh, the, and that there is no prospect of an American company uh, going into that market simply because the market is by, by trucking standards relatively small. And so, um, the uh, we are we are we ha we have to we have to deal with this on both directions, both in terms of what it does to our customers, and then in terms of what it does to our uh, our own our own cost structure. Uh, the oil and natural gas industry and our member companies of API continue to engage the administration at the highest levels to express our concern and the negative trade-offs that we have articulated around energy that come with import restrictions. Um, so that's an ongoing conversation and that's the main point that we continue to emphasize. Um, another key um, front of our activities includes uh, work that we've done to support Senator Corker and others to uh, pass legislation that would um, give Congress, with regards to Section 232 authorities that have been granted to the President and the Executive Branch, an extra check to be able to vote um, to approve or not to approve import restrictions that a president may want to put into place. We think that that is a prudent rebalancing of the division of powers between the legislative and the executive branch and would have been an, an effective check on policymaking that we think has been going in the wrong direction. I'd say our industry is in a very unique position. Our products are American made. <laughs> we can't move them elsewhere. Um, our our farmers are here, our land is here, our natural resources are all here, our barns are built here. Um, as I mentioned, we've been expanding um, because we were looking forward to the future of um, a more integrated um, free trade world. Um, we've been working with the administration at the highest levels and, and trying to find a, a quick resolution that would exempt us for, from some of these tariffs, but like I said, not like we can file an exemption process and and we're just in a very unique position I has always been a, in a very unique position Over here. Uh, my name is Mark Melton I have a question for Maria earlier you were talking about how uh, particular countries will have certain taste for particular products of the uh, pork. And uh, when you lose access to that market, what then happens to that product? Do you sell it in the U.S. at a lower cost? Is it just, you know, waste? Like what actually happens? Do you export it elsewhere and whatnot? If we can continue to export it to that country and still um, make even a little bit of money, we're going to continue to export it there. Um, we don't want to lose that market because essentially, you know, to get into a market like Japan, we've built goodwill for decades. 
um, and we're low-cost producer, reliable source of, of a high-quality product. Um, sometimes it gets stuck here in the U.S. The very last thing that we want for our producers is for the product to go into rendering. Um, that is, you know, we're going we're gonna to try to sell it to anyone that will take it. Um, but we want to maintain um, the, the markets as much as possible just because once those markets are, are gone um, or there's another competitor out there that is eager to fill the shoes. So, and they start establishing those personal relationships. So we, we work really hard to just maintain those, those relationships. Our, our business is based on relationships and high quality and, and low cost. Other questions? Okay. All right. Um, well, I'll take this moment just to thank our panelists so much again for joining us, and I'd hope that you join me in thanking them. Uh, and thank you all for coming, and uh, that is adjourned. <laughs>